0: Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the, the James Bond 8-Z Podcast.
2: Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a
0: journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond 8-Z Podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond E.ON or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail email us at podcast at z.co.uk.
2: Hello and welcome to the James Bond a 2 podcast where this week G is for Goldeneye. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we revisit Piers Brosnan's 1995 007 debut is a man who will never know how I watched him from the shadows as a child. It's Mr Brendan Duffy. <laughs>
0: Very good. <laughs> a bit creepy.
2: <laughs> and alongside him, well, other girls, they gather around him, but if I had him, I wouldn't let him out. It's Mr Tom Wheatley. Yeah, not bad. I prefer Brendan's. <laughs> I can't tell you how excited I am to be talking about this film. I'm going to be honest, I find it hard to be subjective about GoldenEye because it's my number one favourite James Bond film. I don't know how it stands for you two.
0: Here we go. Should we just leave you to it then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was expecting that to come from Brendan, not you. Brendan, back me up.
1: Uh. Yes, I mean, it is very difficult and it it, will, it makes the ranking very, very, very hard. Because I do love the film. Every, every time I watch it, I love it.
2: Yeah, we will come on to the ranking at the very end of this uh, episode. This episode is a film special and uh, as such, we'll be diving into the making of the story... Uh, behind the film, like we said, it, f- it came out in 1995. I think it sort of came out at prime time for all three of us. Uh, but what, do you remember both seeing the film for the first time?
0: Oh yes. What were your yes. recollections I, of that? I saw it in Sleaford Cinema, which is a little cinema where me and Butler come from. Which I think had about 14 seats and a little <laughs> uh, had a little oil heater at the front. And I, I used to have when it rained, rain used to drip through the ceiling. So that was that was my first memory of it. But Um, I was blown away I I, I seem to remember at the time I was really into Bond already by that point but I was really excited about this because it was like the first one I got to see at the cinema so it was a a pretty big deal
2: yeah there was a real media blitz behind it as well wasn't there at the time Hmm. Brendan
1: I think mine is on VHS first time okay yeah because I think my first cinema was Tomorrow Never Dies which would mean this would be video um, but I'm, I don't remember
2: that night I watched it. I'm afraid. No, I mean I can't tell you where I saw it. I'm going to assume I saw it at the cinema in Lincoln at the Ritz, um, if not at the Sleaford Cinema um, with Wheatley. But I, yeah, I remember just it's it's a like I said, a film very, I very find it hard to be subjective about just because I love it so much. I've watched it so many times. It's probably the Bond film I've watched the most. So anyway, um, it's just terrific. So let's let's dive in. First of all, I just I've decided we're going to. Right. We, we spend too much time discussing the plot. I feel like if you're here listening to a film, the James Bond podcast about GoldenEye, you know the plot of the film. So let's let's just skip over that. But basically, the summary from IMDb is years after a friend and fellow 00 agent is killed on a joint mission, a Russian crime syndicate steals a secret space-based weapon program known as GoldenEye. James Bond has to stop them from using it. So that's the summary. Um, but what about uh, what people, uh, what followers thought
0: of it, weekly? Well, a few divisive three-word reviews from the Twitter audience. Some confused ones as well, as usual. They didn't didn't quite work on the principle of a three-word review. Just tend to do quotes. Um, Flickster fan said, Worst Brosnan performance. Oh, wow. controversial. Flickster fan, if you're listening to this, I'm looking at the faces of um, Brendan and uh, Butler here, and they do not look happy. <laughs> In fact, Brendan's crying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, SpyHards says reinvigorated the franchise agree with that Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, Benjamin G. Lund that's my lunch again quote Um, (laughs) not perfected yet said saved the franchise oh yeah. what do you think to that Brendan saved the franchise 100% there we go big time Brendan has spoken Um, Bondblog underscore DE said best toilet stunt (laughs) that's one of the few other things um (laughs) There's uh, oh cine compass, sorry Brendan, a huge disappointment. Ah. Hmm. Um. Uh, Gel nerd said best video game ever again. Not talking about the game here. <laughs> um. <laughs> Cat the kitty eleven sexist misogynist dinosaur. Very right, good a quote there. Right. Um. Right. <laughs> uh Yes. Yeah, Few more quote. I'm not going to read all these because they're just quotes, and so we're probably going to mention these when we go through it uh Aldridge 96 AFC all hail brother! I'll take that that's the best one um Garibaldi 77 Brother's golden High golden High golden eye um and Darren <laughs> Leeley says bean dies spoiler so there we go <laughs> great you get
2: better with each one I think
1: Why don't you hop in my time machine and come back to nineteen ninety-five? Uh, yes, please.
0: Okay. <laughs> oh, the internet stopped working. What? I think I think he's joking there. <laughs> Unless his internet has stopped working, which would maybe we, had, we wouldn't we'll be able to hear, to hear him. him. So, <laughs> must be a joke. Take that as a joke.
1: <laughs> well, it's a joke that doesn't work because the first fact I've got is Windows ninety-five was released by Microsoft. You know. Uh, and eBay started that online auction.
0: The well, div- we, just, we are from Lincolnshire, so we did get it a little bit later. Right, than that most, makes
1: sense. <laughs> most places in the country. Uh, the DVD format was announced. The original PlayStation was launched in Europe, North America and Australia. And can either of you guess what the biggest selling album of 1995 was in the UK?
0: Something with U2. I'd say something with like some Britpop, like Pulp or something. See, you, you're you right to go down
1: those lines if the general public in the UK were normal. No, Robson and Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute fantastic. Uh, <laughs> <corduple>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, of course, GoldenEye was released after six years of a hiatus. So other films in that year. And this is the top ten grossing films. And you can see that it's there's a lot of escapism and... Uh, fantasy jumanji Waterworld, casper seven batman forever pocahontas and then number four you yeah, had goldeneye
0: any guesses for the top three? Uh, oh. 95 yeah the, oh the rock that's earlier isn't No, it? not the rock oh, i don't know fantasies so, with a, apollo is 13 a, was at third oh go on right.
1: Toy Story at number two, of um, course, obviously, obviously. and then a massive action movie. Nope, True Lies. No, nope, that was the year before. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Ah, oh.
0: what a what a year for for films. Waterworld. What a year. for Waterworld. Films. Wait. Water year for films. <laughs> so you can sort of see where
1: the the where cinema is, you know, it's looking pretty strong at that point. A few sequels in there. Including Goldeneye, Mm. obviously. A lot of
0: money, by the sounds of it, floating around at the time. Loads of
1: money sloshing around.
0: Yeah.
1: But obviously there was a big gap between Licence to Kill and Goldeneye. Why was that? Why was that? Well,
2: um, we've discussed this before on the Timothy Dalton episode and also the Pierce Brosnan episode. So you can always refer back to those as well for a bit more detail on this. But basically... In 1989, License to Kill came out with Timothy Dalton. It made a decent amount of money, but not enough to save MGM um, from its financial troubles that it was having at the time. And the guy at the top of MGM, Kirk Kirkorian, he sold his interest in the company to this uh, charlatan called Giancarlo Peretti in 1990 for $1.3 billion. Peretti, turns out, didn't actually have the money to buy MGM. And what he did was borrowed money from a French bank called Credit Lyonnaise. Um, and what his plan was, was to use MGM's assets to pay for the studio before he'd bought it. So he was going to sell off bits of it to pay for the purchase in the first place. It's kind of a bit of a backwards way of doing it. And one of those things that came uh, a bit of a, a sticking point was the TV rights for James Bond. Cubby, fought, Cubby Broccoli, who obviously we know... Um, masterminded bringing Bond to the screen he fought against Giancarlo Peretti's plan to do this and what he did he ended up suing the studio Um, and this obviously then caused um, turmoil um, for E.ON and MGM and then in 1990 so this was a year after Licence to Kill Cubby actually put E.ON up for sale to pay for the legal battle. One silver lining from this from this cloud that was hanging over James Bond at this time was that the TV rights were sold to TBS in America and they um, used those rights to hold James Bond seasons. And it's some people say that's one of the reasons why the franchise endures, because of those TV rights. And we know in the UK, you know, those ITV rights are just a godsend for the, for the series. During this period as well, James Bond Jr. was launched and there was also a comic sort of keeping the brand launch that was keeping the brand ticking over but the MGM there were no movies coming out at all under Peretti and he was living this Hollywood lifestyle uh, he'd even appointed his 21 year old daughter to a senior financial post at the company as well but under Peretti MGM released no movies anyway MGM and Eon eventually settled their differences in 1992 which obviously was already three years after the last James Bond film, which was sort of unheard of at the time. And a new film was announced the following year in 1993, Bond
0: 17. Well, the process for actually getting to Bond 17 was quite a long drawn out one, as you can imagine, because it was tied in with all of the legal discussions and movements of the companies around over that um, what four, four or five year period. So... Actually, after Licence to Kill was released in 1989, there was already some pre-production work for the films taking place. And there's a poster that you can see um, online, which was featured at the Carlton Hotel during the 1990 Cannes Film Festival, which basically just promotes Bond 17, saying that Timothy Dalton will be back in Bond 17. So you can see that. Where, where their thought process was lying at the time. There, was, there wasn't there was really any debate on what was going to happen. They were just planning to make the 17th Bond film with with Timothy Dalton. So uh, a lot of things were happening at the time as well. Um, in the Sunday Times, um, it was uh, reported that Broccoli was parting ways with both Richard Maybound and John Glenn, who'd obviously been part of the Bond series for a long time up until that point. So things were changing behind the scenes, not just from legal and Company Perspective also from the team that work on those. So Broccoli um, was looking at other directors and other writers that could, could work on this next film. G, uh, Michael G. Wilson contributed a script um, and, and he worked alongside a guy called Alphonse uh, Ruggiero Jr. who did a rewrite of it. So there, there's actually a few ideas floating around for Bond 17 over, over that period, as well as one for Bond 18, which was like... Being devised during during this period as well, but the outline was based on a lot of robotic stuff, so it's a bit of a sci-fi thing. So it had robots in it, microchips, and it had a very big sort of sci- sci-fi backdrop to to the film. Um, so at the start of the film, there's a terrorist attack on a nuclear facility in Scotland, which is sort of threatening to cause a new a next the next world war. So in Scotland. They, there's a load of technicians um, working on these robotic devices, and then one of the robots runs a mock and um, the building uh, ends up exploding. Oh no! One, no, it doesn't actually explode, but uh, it, it's it's meant to based on what this robot's doing. Then what happens is that the MPs at has a bunch of questions about the explosion. Okay, so then what happens is the government starts looking into the um, this explosion and what caused it. They get. Bond involved and he ends up going to uh, east asia to c- go look after uh, go after this corrupt businessman called sir henry lee ching um along with a jewel thief called connie Webb. and um bond ends up fighting his former mentor denham crisp so the so generally this this um this sir henry lee ching he wants to unleash a you know electronic Virus to the world that would paralyze all of the military um, and commercial bases. Um, it was actually going to feature animatronic creations from Walt Disney. There was meant to be a monster truck chase through Las Vegas, uh, a love scene on the Whitewater Rapids, and a raid uh, on a secret arms cache inside the Hoover Dam. Um, and there was uh, they also had a, it had a uh, gay assistant in it, Bond, a gay assistant called Jennings uh, and a henchman called Rodin. It was rewritten um, by William Osborne and William Davis, and instead of being in Scotland, they moved it to Libya. Uh, the climax of the this, the film sees Bond led to uh, Sir Henry's base of operations uh, through a sewer system in Hong Kong and eventually gained, gains access to the building and kills Sir Henry. So, yes, um, at this point, Dalton was talking to... Uh, various people about it. He did an interview in 2010 where he said we were basically in talks with directors at that point so it looked like it was going to be made. So the original names that are floating about associated with this idea were A Property of a Lady or GoldenEye. So GoldenEye was already a name that's been touted around alongside this original Bond 17 strip. There is another version of Bond 17 which was a slightly stupider version (laughs) Um, and the idea of this was that it was the the writers, William Osborne and William Davis, were known for films like Twins and Stop, or My Mum Will Shoot. So they took a more comedy a comedic stance on the film, um, and it was uh, I read somewhere that it was a more like a sort of I'm too old for this style. Like they were they were they were basing on the principle that he was an older Bond. So so the general film had a bit more of a comedy element to it. So there's more he, it, there's a bit where he's riding on a rodeo, which sounds like a bit of a Roger Moore scene. But generally, the whole bit of this this second idea for the script was a very Roger Moore style thing it was a lot more capers as opposed to serious um, espionage that was floating about and then a lot of this or some of the things that appeared in those actually was used in Tomorrow Never Dies as we know a lot of that takes Place in the um, in in Asia, so um, they used some of those ideas for Tomorrow Never Dies. There is another film that was talked about at the time. I'm not going to go into depth now, but that was called Reunion of Death, and that's the that was going to be the 18th Bond film. So you can see at this point, they were just ploughing ahead. They were thinking 17 is going to be made. We need to start planning 18. And as we know with Bond films, they do normally film or d- plan at least two films ahead. They know what's going on. So yeah, it was a pretty done deal, and they they were really. You know, pulling stuff together to get this 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 made, but obviously they didn't. No,
1: and they needed to find a new Bond as well, because Timothy Dalton didn't want to come back. Well, he did, but he only wanted to do one. See the Timothy Dalton episode for more information on that, and see the Brosnan episode for more information on this. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna go over a few more people who could have potentially been Bond. So they, they did look at a few actors. MGM ultimately wanted Brosnan. And that's, you know, if they could get him, they, they would, would have him. And that's what happened. But Cubby Broccoli reportedly offered Mel Gibson 15, it's believed, 15 to 20 million dollars to play Bond. Uh, to which he responded, no, it's too boring. <laughs> um Liam Neeson also turned down the role, which we have covered, but I I found a quote for him. He said, I was heavily courted. Let's put it that way. And I'm sure some other actors were too. It was about 18 or 19 years ago. And my wife-to-be said, if you play James Bond, we're not getting married. And I had to take that on board because I did want to marry her. He's also been down as saying he didn't want to become an action star, which given his career (laughs) since. Sean Bean was also somebody who really impressed them, so much so that he went on to play Alec Trevelyan, 006. A young James Purefoy was also considered for GoldenEye, who would go on again to be considered in 2002, I think, after Die Another Day. Charles Dance said he he declined the offer on the advice of his agent, and he said, She might have been right. I don't know if it would have ruined my career, but I'm not sure I was right for the part anyway.
2: He'd been in mm. for your Eyes Only, hadn't
1: he? He'd been in Furious Only, and he'd also played Ian Fleming in the mm. TV Goldeneye film TV Goldeneye. TV, yeah. 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 Jason Isaacs also tested for the role, who went on to play Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter it was... yeah, 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 He would been quite good. Yeah. I think he would. Yeah.
2: He could still do it. Mm. Uh,
1: and uh, we covered on this uh, in an earlier episode, but Paul McGann was second choice to Piers mm. Brosnan if he'd have turned it down.
0: The eighth doctor. Thank goodness. <laughs>
1: um, Ray Fines, who of course went on to play M says there was a conversation that was great and a meeting with Cubby Broccoli. That was terrific. I think all I can say except that I didn't it didn't lead to anything on both sides. I don't think I felt ready to commit and I think they were looking at Pierce. So you can see they're just looking at people as a backup.
2: Keeping their options open. Yeah,
1: keeping those options Mm -hmm. open. But ultimately, they want Brosnan. And it has an inevitability about it. And that's, that's where it headed. And he said, From 1986 until the summer of last year, wherever I went, people would say, you have made a great James Bond. Weren't you going to be James Bond? You should have been. You could have been. You may have been. Yes, 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 yes. It was like unfinished business in my life. I couldn't say no to it this time around. And so he got the part to be the fifth actor to play the the role. He said, I don't want to deconstruct Bond or do a method Bond or anything like that, but a scene with Bond sitting in a room with the camera slowly zooming in on him, showing him in pain. That's what I mean. Peel back the layers, show his dark side. I found that quote quite interesting because it sounds like something Daniel Craig could have said as well. Um, Mm. And especially the scenes we've seen Daniel Craig do. So Brosnan clearly had hunger to do grittier stuff than he got ultimately got
0: given yeah. poor poor brosnan so yeah new new bond in place yeah so they, they did, I, I did read something at the time that that it, it, brosnan was still a bit of a risk at the time because mm. he was a tv actor and he'd never and he was doing sort of quite you know he was playing to Mrs Doubtfire and things like that at the time. Yeah, he was doing
1: second fiddle sort of roles. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Martin Campbell was also largely a TV director at the time. So mm-hmm. there's a bit of a fear around that that period of getting two TV people in to do this film at that point. But yeah, it obviously paid off.
2: Well, let's not so yeah, let's was, not forget MGM is is still in in financial straits when they're making this movie and this is a cut price James Bond film. So I think they probably no no disrespect to Piers Brosnan but probably went for the cheap one of the cheapest options. He was desperate. Well, he had to, don't you? Well, they were planning the long game, weren't yeah. they? They can't. They, they've got to get someone in chief. Yeah, he was playing. And this film is is a, is a one of the lower budget James Bond films. Um, so yeah, they had to aim like they got the best people they could, but they think they did have to go for the sort of the the most basic people to keep the cost down. But um, so it, well over a year before the film is due to come out, because don't forget, it comes out in 90, late '95. There's a press conference called in June 1994, so a good 18 months before the film even comes out, at the London, London's Regent Hotel, um, where international press are invited to meet the new James Bond. Um, obviously, it's going to be Piers Brosnan. So talking about this press conference event, he said, it was a baptism by fire. I had no idea what was going to happen. Everybody was terribly nervous. I was completely ignorant of what I was about to step into. On came the music. I walked out and turned the corner into this blitzkrieg of world press. Now, he also says that he wasn't the only one that was nervous that day because Barbara Broccoli was absolutely cacking herself as well. Let's not forget, this is the first one that she's really stepped into the limelight to produce as well because Cubby, is his health is, is struggling at this point. And so he's handed over the reins, the day-to-day reins to Barbara Broccoli and his stepson, Michael G. Wilson, to, to take over. And this is her first foray into the public eye as well so as we all know Brosnan came out he had long hair and a beard because he was about to start shooting Robinson Crusoe he promised that it would he would play a James Bond for the 90s and again talking about the type of character he would be he said he has to go back to being a more flinty character but we are now in 1994 I think that has to be addressed and this is an interesting quote as well he said uh, asked if the new Bond would be a new man he said no But in a piece like this, which is fantasy continued, I think the political correctness has to be eased up a little bit. Yeah, no woke Bond at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So he did, uh, after the press conference, did three hours of interviews. And then uh, so there's a really, really good making of book for GoldenEye. Uh, by garth pierce and in it there's a pierce brosnan diary and he says after the press conference he went to his hotel room laid on his bed and said what the hell have i said yes to oh god cassie cassie are you up there can you hear am i supposed to feel this shitty Uh, obviously talking about his late wife cassandra who had died in the intervening years between for your eyes only and um And and golden eyes. It sounds really tragic, like seeing that, if you can imagine. But he said he went the next day to cafe on the King's Road, opened all the newspapers, read out read all the press that had happened about it, and he said that every single part of his life was in these reports. He said, girlfriends, where I'd been, who I was, what I'd done, and so began my world as James Bond. And then he flew out to Papua New Guinea, and he thought, well, at least nobody'll know me in Papua New Guinea. He says, and then he said, two days later, I'm jogging through the bush, and these kids were going, James Bond, James Bond. Um, so that was his introduction as Bond.
0: So we've you've already kind of touched on the financial elements of what led up to GoldenEye, and we've mentioned the fact they didn't have a lot of money many, many times. So based on the various factors, you've got the MGM sort of movement of the company so it ended up with a budget of 60 million dollars so in fact we're talking about it being a really cheap bond film but it was still more than any before it's it seems to follow the cost of every bond film that historically gone so you've got things like the living daylights which is 40 million a license to kill 42 million which we know weren't you know really expensive films to make but sixty million's not it wasn't too bad uh, then it jumps up to $110 to Tomorrow Never Dies. So you can see around the 90s, there was a lot more money being spent on big films like this. So um, although it does follow the trend of the the Bond films, to make a film in the 90s just sounds like it was a lot more money. So yeah, and Brosnan did get $1.2 million of that. So on to pre-production, where we've got a film going ahead, we're going to need the
1: script. So when they announced the new film was in the works... They announced it was going to be based on a screenplay by Michael France. So Michael France had created the first draft screenplay and he'd named it after Ian Fleming's residence in Jamaica, GoldenEye. And so the first draft actually had Timothy Dalton in mind uh, for the role of Bond. So Brosnan comes on board. It then needs to be rewritten. That's when Geoffrey Kane comes in, who I think we covered on a previous episode.
2: But yeah, we, did we do Michael France as well? I think yeah. we've done
1: Michael France and Geoffrey Kane. Yeah. yeah. And Fearstein. And Fearstein. We've done, yeah, we've done. <laughs> um, so, Jeffrey Kane keeps a lot of those ideas that um, Michael France came up with, but with a few different angles. So, Jeffrey Kane adds the prologue at the beginning. Then, after that, a third writer comes on, Kevin Wade is brought on to just polish the script. And so, he was sent to London where for five weeks, seven days a week, he just sat working on the script in the E.ON Productions office in Piccadilly. He was asked to work on the character of Bond, who apparently the producers thought in the previous drafts was more reactive than active. He said, I went to the bookshelf at E.ON and picked up three of the original Fleming novels. I would work from eight to six every day and then I'd go home and read the books. It helped a lot. James Bond is a fatalistic action hero, and we wanted to give him the edge that Connery once presented when he did Bond. I had to make sure that Pierce Brosnan's Bond was a direct descendant of Connery's. So he also streamlined that the plot. He gave his own surname to Jack Wade, the CIA agent, because they had big problems about how it was going to be uh, credited. So he thought that was his way of getting his, his own name in there. And then Bruce Feirstein comes in and takes over on the rewrite because uh, Kevin Wade had to go off and screenwrite the comedy, Junior. (laughs) Um, And so the actual on-screen credits, Kane and Fearstein get a screenplay credit and Michael France is credited with the story. Michael France said, in GoldenEye, we were kind of reintroducing Bond. It was Pierce's first Bond movie. It had been six years since another Bond movie had come out. And that sort of Bond. So arguably, it'd be eight or ten years since anyone had taken notice of Bond. I wrote a script that played up to all of my favourite things about Bond. All the classic elements, his sophistication balanced by his ruthlessness, the way he's either repelled by his job or thrilled by it, depending on the situation. And so, yeah, that's it. With a, with a script ready, it's it's time to piece together a team that can, uh, can put it on the screen.
2: And... The first piece of the puzzle is the director. Um, So we all know that Martin Campbell is the director on GoldenEye. He would later return to do Casino Royale. We did an episode talking about Martin Campbell, so you can refer back to that for a bit more about his history um, and other films that he's worked on. But um, just around other directors that were considered for GoldenEye, um, according to the the history books, are Michael Caton-Jones, who is a filmmaker who had directed Memphis Belle and Doc Hollywood. Fantastic film. Which one? Doc Hollywood. (laughs) And then another director was Peter Medak, who had directed The Craze, Let Him Have It, and Romeo is Bleeding. Peter Medak, who had directed Let Him Have It. Do you know who wrote that one? Purvis and Wade. Ah. So you can see that was a film that had caught the attention of Eon. Anyway... Martin Campbell had also caught the attention of Eon thanks to Riley Ace of Spy- Spies, which starred Sam Neill, someone that they had circled for Bond previously. And he'd also done Edge of Darkness, who, which also starred Joe Don Baker, who then ended up in this um, film. But it was a film called No Escape, which proved that he could do epic scale on a low budget. And that's just obviously what Eon needed at this stage. He was also a flat fan of the books, a fan of the films. So he basically just got the job for those reasons. So... He had doubts whether or not the Bond films still had it. He thought maybe they'd done everything they could do in these films. So um, uh, at this point, you know, they'd made two a year since 1963, two, every, two one every two years since 1963. And you can imagine there was a bit of fatigue uh, in there. But Martin Campbell, he said that it's not that I was consciously going out of my way to make the film different different i just made it the way i thought it should be made not to denigrate the previous directors but i think i gave it a lot more pace the approach was to make the action tougher and hard with more of an edge and i will say i think the action in golden is terrific um i think it really mm-hmm. sings in this film as it does later on in casino Royale as well so according to the book the making of book this is martin campbell's routine for the day while he is working on GoldenEye. so he would start every day by waking up at 4.30am and then he would be at Leavesden by 5.30am. He'd spend two hours planning his day, have breakfast on set at 7.30am and start filming at 8. And talking about his style on set, Garth Pearce, who wrote this book, The Making of GoldenEye, he said um, Campbell was fast moving, sharp talking, with irritation, occasionally boiling over to some harsh swearing. So he was quite a fiery director on set by all accounts. Um, during his lunch break, he would then troubleshoot the rest of the day. And then he would also work until 7 p.m. where he would sit through the rushes, um, which is looking back over what they've shot that day. And then he said he would go home, have one very large glass of wine, a chat with his wife and then be in bed by 10.30 p.m. He would do this for six days a week for 20 weeks and do he would do it all of his admin for the film on Sundays. So you can see from that, like his dedication to this movie is mm-hmm. Unbelievable, um,
0: and I think that comes across in the film as well. Wish he'd done tomorrow and never dies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nine to five job that one. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, some of the key crew that worked on it, Cubby Broccoli, of course, was this was where he took a step back because of his health. Uh, so he was a consulting producer. On, on it, really just helping out Barbara and Michael G. Wilson, who were producers on the film. Um, the executive producer on it was Tom Pevsner, who impressive series of films in the past, Lady Killers, Longest Day, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, uh, and Dracula. And he also worked as an executive producer on it, um, a number of Bond films from Your um, Eyes Only. There was uh, Eric Serra, who we'll talk about later on, who of course did the the music uh Brendan shaking his head on camera here. If uh, <laughs> to any listeners, uh, Phil Mayhew uh, was director of photography who um, uh, is interestingly uh, was BAFTA awarded for best cinematography for the 2006 film Casino Royale. So starting his his journey in the in the Bond series there. Terry Rawlings uh, was the editor on it, and he's got a massive load of films in his back back catalogue. Watership Down, Alien, uh, Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner, Butler, one for you. And then the guy I picked out from the, the stunts was Remy Julien, who did the car chase stunts mm-hmm. in the film. So some pretty big names being pulled in for uh, for GoldenEye. Yeah, and a couple of returning cast members as well. So
1: Joe Don Baker, you will recall, played Brad Whitaker in The Living Daylights, and he returns... Uh, He stars in another one after this as well, as CIA agent Jack Wade. So he's back. Uh, It's quite a rare thing for that, isn't it, for them to come back. Charles Gray did it.
2: Yeah, there's a few, isn't there, I think. Yeah. But this is quite a major one. Um, Someone playing quite a major role. Yeah. Uh, It is quite unusual.
1: And quite close as well, uh, in terms terms of the years. And then, of course, a main staple, Q. Desmond Llewellyn is back for his 15th Bond film.
2: Uh, But then we're going to need some new cast. We are indeed. And this film has um, a cracking supporting cast, I think. So I'll we'll talk about the uh, the Bond girls in inverted commas. Uh, first of all, you've got Isabella Skorupko as Natalia Simonova. Now, Skorupko was born in Poland, but moved to Sweden as a child. And she made a film debut at age 17, worked as a model and then a singer. She actually had a gold hit record in Sweden. Um, so she was known as a singer at the time. Um, before she returned to acting um, just a year before GoldenEye. So Martin Campbell says that they'd searched all over Europe to find the right person to to play Natalia. And the casting agent, Debbie McWilliams, who's still with Bond, said um, that they, she said, we haven't tried Sweden yet. So they went to Sweden, um, met with Isabella, and, and Martin Campbell said he knew within 30 seconds that she was the one. So unfortunately, according to the book, she broke up with her hockey player boyfriend during the shooting on GoldenEye. But they did get back together after filming had finished and they went on to marry and they had a child together. And after that, she took five, six years off acting to raise the child. So talking about playing Natalia, uh, Isabella said, I think it's the first time you see a Bond girl looking messy and vulnerable throughout most of the film. Which is kind of true when you think about it, because she's introduced and then sort of blown up, and she is uh, then really m- pretty much on the back foot from there from there on, on there onwards. But she said that th- there's a scene in the film. I don't know if you remember it well, but on on the beach, which is towards the end of the film, it happens between their train sequence and then going to the um, the dish. And that scene was added in uh, after her, she had discussions with Martin Campbell, saying that they she felt that her character and Bond needed a sort of resolution. Uh, to their relationship so they worked together on that um scene well she worked on that with bruce fierstein who then worked that scene into it And she said that was one of the first scenes she actually filmed with pierce brosnan and she didn't know him at this point really so she said before they sat down to shoot the shoot that scene she asked for a couple of hours just to sit and watch pierce brosnan so that she could then sort of know what she was working with and she said he was very easy to watch and work with a very handsome man but a real gentleman too so um, after GoldenEye, she went on to appear in Martin Campbell's film Vertical Limit. She also starred in Reign of Fire and Exorcist at the beginning and the TV show Alias. She has married three times and she became an American citizen in 2021. Um, other Bond girls, there aren't. there's only a couple really minor ones after that. You've got Serena Gordon as Caroline. She is the... Um, mi6 person sent out to evaluate bond after the post credit sequence she now has one scene with him but she's a rather trained theater actor and she said my friends have been falling around with laughter at the prospect of me being a bond girl i think they're expecting me to see me in a bikini rather than armani um, after james bond she went on to star in the bill and midsummer murders but actually she gave up acting and she is now involved in something called the hoffman institute and she has been for years have you heard of this before (laughs) no it's quite bizarre it's like a weird like cult type thing i don't think it's a cult don't don't sue me but according to the website the hoffman process is a seven-day residential course that helps you discover who you really are freeing you to make conscious choices that will improve your relationships with the people around you so yeah, I'm signing up. Yeah, <laughs> sounds perfect. <laughs> yeah, a strange career move for Serena Gordon there. And then I just threw this one in for fun because it is a quite a funny uh, appearance. But it's mini driver as Irina. She's only in it very briefly. But um, obviously, uh, at the time in 1995, she said she was broke and living on a beach in Uruguay uh, when she was offered the role in Goldeneye, and she almost rejected it she was gaining popular uh, fame at the time in a show called circle of friends in america um, and she says i got the call at the post office from my agent the casting directors want you to be in a bond film she said i had five bucks to my name and i'm in a bikini that i'd lived in for the last three months and i go i'm not sure i'm in such such a good idea to be in a bond movie i feel like it's kind of the kiss of death i don't know if i should do that what happen- really happens to bond girls and their agents just said are you crazy get on a plane and she was paid $5,000 for her part.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and funnily enough, obviously, Bond makes the joke about strangling <coughs> in a cat. Um, Minnie Driver is actually a classically trained singer and has actually released records as well. So fun fact for you. And just within two years time of appearing in GoldenEye, she'd starred in Goodwill Hunting and Gross Point Blank, two massive movies that really put her on the, um, uh, in the limelight in Hollywood. So, so uh, yeah. is she the one that broke the curse then?
0: <laughs> Must, be. <Yeah>. Must <laughs> be. It's crazy, really when you think about it. Well, the Bond girls, in inverted commas, aren't the only big-name female to join the cast of GoldenEye uh, because it's the first time we see Judy Dench take on the role of M, replacing uh, Robert Brown and, of course, Bernard Lee from the previous films. Um, Judy Dench was... Well, the, the the role was chosen to to be a woman, supposedly because of the Stella Remington... Um, being head of mi five uh, in 1992, when the decisions were being made, um, I'm not going to go into too much depth about uh, Judy Dench here because I think we're probably going to go into quite a lot more depth when we do the M entry. M is for when we M. Get to M. Yep. <laughs> M in the M episode, um, but she obviously went on to star in all of the films all the way up until Skyfall, so pretty big choice of of of. Uh, actor to star in the films there that had a massive part in the whole series, um, and also ties in. We've spoken about this before as well with Barbara Barbara Broccoli and and how she was shaping the films to be more sort of gender balanced and use more like really good female actors in the films. So um, a a big part of um, Barbara Broccoli be, becoming part of the sort of decision makers in the Bond. Film series, and yeah, she is fantastic in it. She is, um, she just te- makes that role her own almost instantly. Um, and I don't remember at the time, I know you know, when you get Daniel Craig and New Bonds, there's a lot of discussion about it. I don't remember at the time anybody even saying, Oh, we can't have Judy Dench as M. I think it was just welcomed. Um, and I remember when I saw it, everyone thought she was fantastic. Yeah, I don't think I knew who Judy Dench was before she was oh, on. Oh, come on. As time goes by, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only thing that was on on a Sunday. Road <laughs> Roadshow and Last of Summer Wine. But it felt that Stella Rimmington thing,
2: I felt like it It felt like the natural time to do it, didn't it? But And, yeah, and,
0: and also, and also the uh, we talked to quite a lot about this with the sort of John Cork Bible and all the stuff that went on to to create a bond for the 90s. Judy Dench, I, I imagine, to quite a large extent, was a response to that. In that Bond needed to to have some but a, a female presence in in the films that was not just, you know, the standard Bond girl. And she does that perfectly. Mm-hmm. She's she's really really holds her own in that. And in, in in many ways, it shapes Brosnan's character more than any male lead could do in in that role. Yeah, don't forget, yeah. she came back in Inspector and on the wall in no time to die as well. Yeah, she did, yeah. <laughs> Not sure why that's relevant.
1: But good knowledge anyway, Butler. Uh, I'll tell you what, it's relevant. Her first TV appearance was opposite Bernard Lee.
0: Is that right. What? Yeah. Wow. And she was friends with Bernard yeah. Lee, so that's um it's quite nice. That's really quite nice. Yeah. yeah, save that one. Save that one for the M episode. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, delete that. that <laughs> then we then we cover both of those. Yeah. in the same one. <laughs> Um, so
1: in terms of villains so the main villain of course is Alec Trevelyan and he was originally in in the first early scripts down as Augustus Trevelyan and it was sort of an older mentor figure for Bond Anthony Hopkins and Alan Rickman were reportedly wanted to play those roles but both turned it down so Sean Bean was cast And the character was then rewritten to be Bond's colleague. Uh, Sean Bean probably needs... I don't need to explain who Sean Bean is, but I'll just touch on some of the work he's done. He's an English actor, famous for being from Sheffield, because he seems to do his Sheffield accent in most things he's in. This is probably one of the only things he doesn't, isn't it? So yeah, you've got Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, Ronin. I mean, he's a national icon, isn't he? He said... The villain has always been an integral ingredient to the success of the Bond films. And Trevelyan is a good adversary to Bond in this adventure. They're a good match, each knowing that the other can be totally professional, ruthless killer when he wants to be so. The final confrontation between them is powerful and very spectacular. Ooh, yes. uh, so you've got Famke Janssen as on the top, who is a fighter pilot and Trevelyan's henchwoman. Played by, yeah, Famke Janssen, who is probably most famous for playing Jean Grey in the X-Men film series. Yeah. She said, Xenia gave me a great opportunity to be what I would sometimes like to be, but could never get away with. She loves men her own way. There's a kind of animal attraction between her and James because Xenia's definitely an animal. I think she's fantastic.
2: Uh, Oh, yeah.
1: Absolutely incredible. And with real, genuine threat as well. Robbie Coltrane as Valentin Tsukovsky. He's a Russian gangster, an ex-KGB. He's another one that needs no introduction. And and this is where they spent that budget wisely because although it's not big bucks they're spending on big names, they're getting some fantastic talent, especially British talent as well. So Robbie Coltrane goes on to play Hagrid. That's undoubtedly what he's most famous for now. He said, I do get to say the immortal line... Cracker. Cracker, yeah, crackers. <laughs> he does say I do get to say the immortal line when the gun comes up, Walther PPK, seven point six five millimetre. I only know three men who carry these and I believe I've killed two of them. I mean, I would pay to say a line like that. So he he had a lot of fun and then he obviously comes back in the world is not enough as an ally of Bond. You've got Gottfried John playing Colonel Oromov. He's great and then yeah, he's he's excellent. And in the opening scene, the, the look he gives Bond. I love that every time he tilts his head in, yeah, in confusion yeah. at what Bond's doing. Alan Cumming is Boris Grishenko, who is the computer programmer who gets one of the most famous lines in the film.
2: I'm invincible.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. You've not been practising that one, have you? <laughs> he's one of my
2: favourite all-time Bond minor villains, I think.
0: Is he? <laughs> yeah. He's so... I've never thought about my list of favourite Bond minor villains. <laughs> that's an episode coming up. Yeah. 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 Should we talk about the Allies?
2: Yeah. First of all, I can't believe you mentioned Sean Bean and didn't mention Sharp, because that that's, surely totally that's, sharp, yeah. that's the role he's most famous for. Probably but not globally, though. Maybe not globally. No, that's true. Anyway, Allies. We've got a new money penny. We've got Samantha Bond. She's in replacing Caroline Bliss. And we'll talk about Money Penny uh, later on in the podcast series when we get to the letter M. But talking about playing Money Penny, she said, nobody was going to knock me playing Money Penny if Judy was playing M. She raised the credibility for everyone. But she knew Caroline Bliss before getting the the role. So she said when she was offered the role, she said, please don't ask say anything to anyone until I've personally spoken to Caroline. They'd actually uh, both attended... Uh, the same grammar school and they'd been to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School together as well and so Caroline Bliss said when Samantha got the role she avoided me for a few weeks but eventually she called me she said I'm so sorry darling I'm so sorry and I just burst out laughing I said look I'm going to be a, become a mum and I'm thrilled it's gone to one of my best friends so interestingly Samantha Bond had been asked to audition to play Money Money Penny in 1986 for The Living Daylights but uh, her agent had discouraged her she saw uh, her Money Penny as more of a sparring partner for Bond. And I think Money Penny in this film is terrific. And it just makes it such a shame what they do with her by the time they get to die another day. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. that's another story. <laughs> and finally, allies Michael Kitchen as Bill Tanner. Oh. Here we go. Here we go. So, <laughs> Tanner. Obviously, he doesn't play much of a role in here, but he gets the great line about calling M the evil queen of numbers. And I love MI6 in this film. I love the way that like, they're in that weird like, office space with the video screens and everything's happening around it's, them. It's,
0: it's believable. It's like yeah. mm. what, what you'd actually what they'd be like they'd be bickering, bickering and arguing there'd be people from different departments in there it's perfect how they've done yeah, it yeah, yeah there's it. more than four staff members yeah it's
2: it's realistic yeah,
0: this is it's, this, a re, it's a real company this yeah. is
2: peak mi6 for me definitely um, and then obviously he gives Bond his uh, briefing on on GoldenEye as well. So um, Michael Kitchen returned uh, as Tanner in The World Is Not Enough. Uh, he hadn't been able to appear in Tomorrow Never Dies, and that's why Colin Salmon's character Charles Robinson was introduced in that film to play that sort of role. So unfortunately Tanner's um, role in the Brosnan era is is, is slightly diminished. Um, but obviously Michael Kitchen best known for Foyle's War. <laughs> Oh, of right. course, yeah. He starred yeah. as Chief Superintendent Christopher Foyle in Foyle's War between 2002 and 2015. He, he was in that for 13 years. And wow. this is interesting. Doesn't give interviews. Full stop. Does not give interviews. So you can't find out anything about his time as Tanner at all.
0: It's funny that it, what, not why would anyone want to give interviews?
2: Because people aren't bothered about Foyle's War. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's a Scientologist. Isn't That's that. all he wants to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> right? Should
0: we crack on with production? So production, Goldeneye marked an interesting point in the Bond production series as as well as uh, Licence to Kill because we know that Licence to Kill wasn't filmed in the UK. So Goldeneye was filmed in the UK but they couldn't film at Pinewood Studios which was the usual base obviously for all of the films that they make or the majority of the films that the Bond films have been made um, at. Um and the reason for that is that the uh, Pinewood Studios was already booked up because they were filming first night. So Sean Connery there sticking it in <laughs> and uh taking Pinewood Studios where they're trying to make re- revamp the Bond series. So uh instead they found an old Rolls-Royce factory which at the time nobody would know about but now it's one of the most famous film studios in the world because of Harry Potter and where this where you'll go and see the um Harry Potter What's it called? Harry's Potter Experience? Studio Tour. Studio yeah. Tour. Studio Tour, that's it, which we've, we've been to. Very we, nice. Yeah. I'd have rather have seen the GoldenEye set there. So yeah, it was uh, Rolls-Royce Factory at uh, Leavesden Aerodrome. in. Uh, it's in Hertfordshire. So they converted it into a big studio. If you look at the uh, DVD uh, for GoldenEye, there's a big sort of documentary on how they set it up. And it was a big, big thing to set up because GoldenEye had an enormous range of sets that they filmed on. We'll go into the different production sets in a bit. But they eventually made a deal with E.ON that gave them permission to do whatever they wanted to make GoldenEye happen, which was a lot. They did a lot of work on that. And the biggest set, which we'll talk about in a bit, was the St. Petersburg set, which was enormous. It took 175 workmen uh, over six weeks to build that set. And it had scaffolding everywhere. Really big deal. And the Leavesden Studios then went on from just from its humble beginnings as an old Rolls-Royce factory. We talked about Harry Potter, but also uh, they shot the Star Wars prequels there, which you can imagine were a pretty big deal. Although, to be honest, most of the Star Wars sequels from memory was CGI, so maybe they didn't have to use all of the... uh, Just a corner, which is an office <laughs> in there. That'll do. Um, so, yeah. So, so Leavesden, the... the, the, the moving away from um, from Pinewood. They also filmed the uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman
2: films there as well. It's still a massive studio. They, they shoot the Fantastic Beasts films there. It's, uh,
0: it's a massive deal for, for Warner Brothers. Um, and I, used I, well, I'm not bothered about seeing Fantastic Beasts, but I would really love to see some of the other sets there. Maybe they'll have a Bond experience there one day. Who knows?
1: Uh, and so before shooting, Brosnan gets an injury. He has a problem with his, his finger, and he said what what happened was i sliced this finger open here this pinky and i have to have my hand in a climate splint for about 10 weeks before filming and the splint came off the morning of the very first day of shooting and so the scene that they were shooting is in the nightclub with Zakovsky and the scene where mini driver's singing so it's been splinted up for 10 weeks it's really stiff and he, he's got no movement in it he says we went for the first take and the finger went doink and just pointed out when he's got when he's holding the gun and obviously it wasn't what the scene wanted and Martin Campbell said cut what the F is going on so in the end (laughs) yeah loads of sympathy Um, so did it again it happened on the second take and so Brosnan decided to stick the finger to the gun with a plaster now if you Watch it, knowing this, he's, it is in a weird place. You can see that it's yeah. not natural. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, it... <laughs> it, it is sort of poking out, isn't it, still? Yeah. Yeah. It's not got a grip around the gun at all. No. Yeah. It, here's a fun fact for you as well. Did you know that his son Christopher did some hand doubling for Brosnan in the film as well because did of he? his injury? Yeah. Ah. So there's, um, I only learned this from the making of book, but it, when you see him pull the handbrake of the DB5, that's his son Christopher's hand. And when he opens up the um, the the champagne thing as well, that's his son's hand right. as well, not, not Brosnan's hand, because of oh. his injury. So, in fact, yeah. So, <laughs> six months after the press conference at the Regent Hotel, another press conference called uh, on the 22nd of January, 1995, It was called After a Week of Filming Had Commenced. Um, This took place at Leavesderm with 400 journalists flown in from around the world. Sean Bean was driven in, especially from the set of When Saturday Comes for the event, because he was busy shooting that. They obviously did a regular press conference. One of the funniest things I read was Robbie Coltrane saying, at my age of 44 in this way, I thought my chance of being a Bond girl was slim. But I must say, Pierce is an absolute gent in our shower scene. So I thought that was quite a funny uh, whip. (laughs) They had an Aston Martin DB5 on display because obviously, obviously it was in the film and they were supposed to be revealing the BMW Z3, but unfortunately it actually wasn't finished production yet. Um, and so what they did instead was they had this huge empty crate there that was marked top secret and they even had a security guard patrolling it, even though there was nothing inside it um, because it was sort of this build-up for this hype for the um, the Z3 being revealed. So talking, <laughs> talking about his... Uh, as we mentioned before, the political correctness of the era. But uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan was asked about the Bond girls, and Pierce said, "These are leading la- leading actresses in their in their own right. We'll call them leading ladies." But Isabella has luscious lips, and Famka has great legs. So uh, he he had to let he had to let one uh-huh. slip. Um, and then talking about being compared to the other Bonds, he said, "I'm working with a lot of people who've done many." Bond films before but however supportive and embracing they are I'm going to be judged against my predecessors the shoes of Roger Moore and Sean Connery are very big to fill bit of a glaring omission there don't you think the shoes of Roger Moore and Sean Connery yeah no mention of Timothy Dalton what? Or, George. or George or Lazenby yeah of course yeah <laughs> so you've got a glaring omission there mate yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> Speaks volumes.
2: Well, well I mean Lazenby can be forgiven because he's only made one film and it was decades ago. But literally the man has literally just left the building. <laughs> Timothy Dalton only made two the last two films. So you'd think he'd mention him, but no. No mention. He
1: could have been there.
2: He could have had the role. Yeah, that's true.
0: Uh, so let's talk a little bit about locations that were used for Goldeneye filming. Um, a big one that was used throughout the film for a, a, for a few different scenes was uh, Puerto Rico. Um, now, uh, the main one I'll talk about in a second, but apparently Puerto Rico was used for um, Janus's hideout, uh, which was actually meant to be in the Cuban jungle and in the scene where Bond is driving around in the BMW Roadster. Um, that was also filmed in puerto rico although they don't really draw that much attention to the location in those scenes the big part of the um puerto rican filming was a place called arecibo observatory um which is the massive satellite dish uh scene that we see at the end but it wasn't all filmed there because it was actually really difficult to film at this observatory because it was it was massive, it was um, actually quite dangerous to film there and they weren't allowed to do a lot of things there. But I won't tell you any more about that at the moment because we'll, I'll lead on to that when we talk a little bit more about the fight scene later on. Um, but yeah, a lot of scenes done in Puerto Rico for this film. And
1: so for the scenes in Monte Carlo, first up we have the Ferrari chase. And so that chase isn't actually shot anywhere near Monte Carlo. It's in the northwest of France in Route de Janty, really? Uh is that pronunciation correct? Mm, probably not. Is it your girlfriend French? She is, yep. I', I got to check. <laughs> uh, but Pierce Brosnan actually caused a bit of damage to the DB5 in this scene. He said, we did about eight takes. And they said, what's that smell? And I said, I don't know. I've been driving up the mountain with the handbrake on. I mean, that's not the sort of damage you do to a DB5, is it?
0: Well, he only got paid 1.2 million for this. He didn't yeah. really that's didn't about, pay him. For, that's to, about three DB5s, isn't it?
1: so yeah and then obviously after that scene in the film they get to the harbour
2: yes um, mm. obviously the chase we've got Remy Julien in the car there for Bond yeah. and I think um, some, was it Remy Julien's like son playing Zenny on the top with a wig or something um, but um, if you remember back in our Aston Martin episode we talked about that scene and how they uh, actually had a crash between the Aston Martin and the Ferrari so um, they had to uh, hastily fix those cars between takes But yeah, as you remember, there is a scene in the harbour at um, uh, Monte Carlo. There's a speedboat scene and there's a bit where Bond gets uh, his gun out to stop Onatop from stealing the helicopter. When they were shooting this, Brosnan was a bit too quick off the mark and he dropped his gun in the sea. And a diver had to jump into the sea to find (laughs) the Walter PPK so they could carry on shooting. I did have some information about Pierce Brosnan driving with his handbrake on, but Brendan, you've already done that. So, uh, yeah, he talked about on that, on the Esquire GoldenEye uh, watch-along, which happened during lockdown, which is terrific, by the way. Um, worth a watch.
0: Oh, Brosnan, he's like Mr Bean on this, isn't he? <laughs> Just causing problems left, right and centre. <laughs> oh, he's dropped his gun again. Oh, come oh, on, Oh, his finger's sticking out, The wink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't pay me enough. Um uh, so, uh, the pre-title scene, and that, I mean, this is a fantastic pre-title sequence, isn't mm-hmm. it? And it's one of the most famous stunts that's ever been on a on a Bond film, and we talk quite a lot about how every Bond film, they try one-up like the films before, so the stunts have got to be always be better than the ones before. This one really was. This was like, you get into the cinema, it's the first time you've seen Bond for either you know six years or ever on the big screen, and this... Scene does not disappoint. So this opening bungee jump was a 220 meter bungee jump uh, at Argens uh, Arkangelsk, uh, but it was shot at the uh, it shot at the Contra Dam in Switzerland, and it's performed by a, a, a stunt uh, stuntman called Wayne Michaels, and it was voted one of the best movie stunts of all time uh, in uh, the Sky Movies poll in 2002, and set a record for the highest bungee jump off a fixed structure. Now, you can actually go there. I don't know if you can still go there, but you could go there um, because the owners leased the dam out after GoldenEye was filmed, so people could go and do actual bungee jumps, commercial bungee jumps off of that to sort of see what it was like, which I don't think I'd want to do um, after seeing that that, that, that sequence. Um, But, yeah, it was very popular, uh, and apparently over 10,000 people have jumped that 220-metre drop from the dam um, since they started doing it after GoldenEye. Which is incredible. Don't know how much it costs. I bet it's a bit of a pricey deal. I actually think I, 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 when I was snowboarding, somebody told me, pointed at a dam that looked just like that dam in Austria. It's quite far away. And said, that's the dam from Goldeneye, which could be because I was in the Alps. But I'm not sure if it was. I like to think it was. It's a cracking anecdote. She's uh, <laughs> should tell that more often. <laughs> I might have seen a dam that might have been... The Golden Eye one. I'm taking it. I'm having that. I do Not a lot happens in my life. I once saw a man that looked a little bit like Roger Moore. I've got a fun uh, a fun critique of that
2: scene, if I may just jump in with it. Mmm, yes. So obviously everyone loves that stunt. I'll tell you one person who doesn't, Jackie Chan. You ready for this? Go on. Go on. From the first shot until the actor opens the door, it's all a stunt double, Jackie Chan said. Even the shot of him running is doubled. He wouldn't go to the location. The shots of the back are of the back of his head or from overhead. This is 007. He should at least run or jump or do something. Why in Hollywood don't they have this kind of state style anymore? he asked.
0: Piers Brosden can't hold a bloody gun or put a hand grip they <laughs> can break off, they're not gonna let him jump off of dam, are they? He won't. He'll forget to tie the bungee rope to his leg. <laughs> he says it's all special effects nowadays.
2: They don't try to improve the stunt work nowadays. All they improve is the computer. Scathing words from Jackie Chan.
1: Well, I mean, it's Jackie Chan, isn't it? They did do the damn jump for real. What's he talking about? I know. I think he wants Priz Brosnan to do it. And also, they did this this next one for real. So later on in the pre credits, uh, you've got the the escape. That's filmed at uh, the, the top of Talistock Mountain for the mot- motorcycle r- for the ride. And then they went to the top of the Eiger North Face for the, the dive into the plane. They did that for real. Incredible stunt. So Jackie Chan can shush. Uh, Michael G. <laughs> Wilson said, the motorcycle jump was done again in Switzerland. We built the, the ramp in the fall and then we had to wait until it snowed. We had Jack... Mal knew to go off his motorbike and open his parachute. We did that for real. Every time they'd just got enough petrol in the tanks, so they could literally run out of gas when they ran off for ecological reasons because we didn't want to damage the environment. Then in the spring, when the thaw came, we went down, retrieved the mo- motorbike parts. That stunt started in the fall with building the ramp and ended in spring with picking up the pieces.
0: So you can see the, the amount of effort they're going to to get these mm. real shots. Yeah. Martin Campbell gets a lot of credit for that sequence because at that time, when you look at films like True Lies, the amount of camera shots and angles that they use to film those sequences, th- there's loads. They'd have another plane over the top, filming it from above. They'd have things underneath. Martin Campbell does it in like one camera angle mm-hmm. yeah, and it still works really well. And that's a testament to the fact that this film didn't have the budget to pay for those things. So he yeah. made it work. But it still works better than many more expensive, like Looks better than a Michael Bay film to mm-hmm. me. That yeah. and Michael Bay's probably got an extra fifty million for that sort of sequence like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's fantastic. Definitely. Sequence. Campbell said, "I think Jacques went over that six thousand foot drop or whatever.
1: It was about seven times. What a ridiculous job! That whole sequence is about putting Bond in a situation where you wonder how can he possibly escape. There's a bloody cliff at the end of the runway. So what the f does he do now?" That's the thing. Put him in impossible situations all the time. I did have concerns that skydiving into a crashing plane was going too far, to be honest. But we actually considered doing it for real at one point. So they considered do, like, the person flying off the side would actually try and get into the plane. But obviously that proved to be a step too far. And then in terms of the destruction of the the actual facility, Peter Lamont said, It's a very small miniature It's shown quite a long way away. Derek Meddings did that. He did some great stuff. You have to be careful with the way you shoot miniatures so that the flames don't look too big. But Derek had worked for a long time on Thunderbirds, blowing stuff up. His best models were dead simple. When you watch it, even knowing it's a model, this whole film, you know, interspersed when you're going between model and real thing. And when you listen to the commentary, you've got um, Martin Campbell and Michael G. Wilson. They're forgetting what's real and what's not as well. And they were actually there. So... (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's great work, and a
2: great opening scene. What I've got one criticism of the opening scene, which is here we go.
0: They don't play the bond. Come on, Jackie Chan, we got to tell us- They don't
2: play the Bond theme.
0: Ah, but that's a, that's a problem which we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> it- yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't. Yeah, there's, there's somebody to blame. <laughs> Let's that, not yeah. jump the gun just yet. <laughs> All right,
2: here's some other locations that they shot at Epsom. Uh, they went to Epsom Racecourse. Um, and the Queen's Stand doubles for the front of Saint Petersburg Airport, where he meets Jack Wade. You've also got the Drapers Hall uh, in London that they use that the interior of that for the Russian Defense Ministry. They actually shoot outside Somerset House, uh, which we all know and love. Uh, that is where Jack Wade is bashing his uh, car <laughs> um, in Saint Petersburg. So the interior of the church when the hides out and is uh, met by Boris and Xenia is at a place called St Sophia's Greek Cathedral uh, in Bayswater in London. And the exterior of the church is also nearby. That's at Brompton Cemetery in Earl's Court. Then you've got the Langham in London that doubles for the Grand Hotel. And then the train scenes. They are filmed at Neen Valley Railway in Peterborough, which had previously been used on Octopussy. So, um, yeah, they were very resourceful with their English locations.
0: So going back to Puerto Rico, I mentioned earlier about the difficulties in filming at the Arecibo Observatory in in Puerto Rico. And um, basically this final fight sequence that took place on the, the big satellite dish, it was really difficult to film because they couldn't actually film it all on this dish because it was a it was a real dish. It was massive as well. So the, the logistics of actually filming this sequence on it was almost impossible. So what they did was they had to split it down into different ways of filming. They did a they did a combination of indoor set pieces, outdoor sets, model work, um as well as um, CGI. This was the first film that Bond film that really uses CGI in it, so it's a combination of all these things to pull together that final um, sequence. There were three units working on it, and yeah, they have to pull all those bits and pieces together to actually get it to to look like it like it does. The actual hand-to-hand fight sequence between um, Bond and Trevelyan is uh, done using a green screen in the background, uh, and the dish was then digitally added. Uh, they used a, a scale model of the the dish. Um, uh, and uh, the surrounding mountains, um, and the the miniature model only measured fifty foot for that. You wouldn't notice, would you, in the in the film? No, it's um, incredible
1: that the shot when it, it just goes back and forth, back and forth between model and real thing,
0: and it's yeah, seamless. Don't notice it at all. Yeah, it's really fantastic. good. Although I do think that that sequence is good, but there is a sequence earlier where they use models with um, where they blow up the sort of receiver in the where is it Siberia or something? Yeah that you can tell that's a model uh, at that point I always remember that when I saw it at the cinema thinking that's not quite as good (laughs) there are other bits as well there's uh, so you can actually find pictures of the model Uh, there's a a Goldeneye chapter in the Tashin James Bond archives book which has a really good picture of it another interesting point as well of this is that the scene where Bond and Natalia are sliding down the dish was actually filmed separately as well because the dish dish was actually made of metal not concrete um, and they wanted them sliding down On concrete on it, so they had to use a separate location for that. That dish doesn't exist anymore. Actually, two cables broke um, from the uh, platform, and it's it was decommissioned. But it actually collapsed and had to be uh, uh, have a controlled demolition on it um, in 2020, which is sad. So you can't see it anymore. Mm. But yeah, fantastic scene. Lot a lot of work going into making that look good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Another fantastic scene.
1: An iconic scene, the tank sequence. One of the best tank sequences ever done on film. So this was filmed along the Moika River, on the banks of the Moika River, front of St. Isaac's Cathedral in Russia, in St. Petersburg, on location, and then a lot of it being... They built, it, built a set on, on the runway at Leavesden. And the first time I found, that, found this out, I was amazed because it's such a huge task but like you touched on earlier Peter Lamont and his team they recreated the streets of St. Petersburg it took 175 workmen six weeks across an area of two acres with 62 miles of scaffolding um, they really made that
0: budget work didn't they yeah
1: they did and so for the, the the shot of the tank bursting through the wall bits of the set were built in brick sized thermalite blocks I guess it'd be quite fun to have a, have a go on that set wouldn't it yeah, it would be bad. Yeah, better than going on the Harry Potter so. <laughs> rubbish. Butterbeer uh. is too expensive. So, uh, according to second unit director Ian Sharp, uh, it was thought up by Chris Corbould during a pre-production meeting that lasted ten minutes. And so, the most complicated stunt in the whole of the sequence is regarding the Perrier cans. So obviously he goes through the Perrier cans and then the statue gets stuck on top of the tank. And so two of the crew members spent a week emptying 90,000 cans of Perrier so that when he crashed into them, it wasn't a massive explosion of carbonated water. And then to make sure that the statue attached itself to the tank, Chris Corbould, he created a loop beneath the statue in the hope that it would catch. And he said, we came up with other complex and complicated methods, but I thought... This one is worth a go. We drove the tank at it and the statue stuck on the first take. I mean, there you go. That's, that's what you want, isn't it? So stuntman Gary Powell drove the tank. It reached speeds of 35 miles per hour. And each shot, they had uh, four, uh, four to six cameras focus on it at all times because they had to be frugal with, with, these, uh, with the shots. You know, they had big budget constraints and it was costing time and money. Um, and so the tank used is a Russian T-54, T-55 tank and it was on loan from the East England Military Museum who and modified it with the addition of fake explosive armour panels. And to avoid destroying the pavement of the streets of St Petersburg when they were there, the steel tracks were replaced with rubber-shoed tracks from a British tank. And that tank used in the film is now on permanent display at the old Buckham airfield uh, and that's where the East England Military Museum is based.
2: One of the all-time great action sequences not just in Bond films I think in in action films full stop.
1: Yeah I agree Um, absolutely fantastic.
2: I know you keep saying you'd rather not go there than Harry Potter but I've actually been on those streets uh, when they were filming the Fantastic Beasts films um, on that runway and they transformed them into Paris um, and was the first one New York, yeah? Um, and you would be forgiven for thinking it was a real place. The way that they transformed that that runway into cityscapes is insane, absolutely mm. insane. So yeah, I've been on that street basically. So I mentioned that someone Not else fair. has been on that street. Someone slightly more famous is Roger Moore. On the first of June, nineteen ninety-five, Roger Moore visited Leavesden to see his son Christian, who was working as third assistant on the film, and to see Michael G. Wilson um he's got a beard you've seen the photos he's also limping from a knee operation and he greets pierce with i've been called up they said we've seen the results of poor old brosnan so he so get the knee right and you're back in the job (laughs) classic roger
0: absolute tour de force fantastic bet brosnan loved that (laughs) laughed his head off (laughs) yeah i bet he
2: did as well just knowing that roger was there watching him doing this tank stuff um but yeah, it's the tank stuff that he's shooting at that point. I think it might even have been Pierce's one of Pierce's last days of shooting on set. It was one of the final things that they did. But yeah, imagine Roger Moore
0: turning up on set. You'd just be like overawed, wouldn't you? We talked a lot about the miniatures. We've we've waxed lyrical about the miniatures throughout the this of this podcast. But the man behind it is of course Derek Meddings. And um he he's a man who's worked on a lot of Bond films. He did his first Bond film, uh, His Living Let Die in 1973, and continued to impress uh, Cubby as he continued to work through um, various films in there. Uh, It was him that did the uh, Lotus Esprit car in Bio Love Me, created the smaller models that were used in the filming shots. And um, he's a man that's... We'll we'll mention him again later on in the podcast when we get to... um, the M episode, that's going to be a good episode by by the sounds of it. So he's worked on loads of stuff. He worked on all like the Fireball XL5, Stingray, Thunderbirds, things with models in. He's very good at models, basically. He's, he's done loads of stuff. He was in uh, He did Superman. Um, I believe he's got one acting credit as well, which is in Spies Like Us, which I thought was an interesting fact. But, yeah, he he did all of the uh, models, um, including the stuff that we talked about with the satellite dish, but also the stuff in it's so, It's... So, Savenia, the location where there's that, the snowy location yeah. where you you, you see the stuff getting exploded earlier on. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to go too much into depth with, with Meddings because we could talk about him for hours. But um, yeah, that's all down to him and his fantastic model work.
2: Something I learned about Derek Meddings as well is that he did the, 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 the MiG airplanes as well, you know, that fly over Survenaya. They're actually model yeah. airplanes. Yes, mm. I
0: remember that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, but is it Derek Medins that died during yeah, shooting? Yes, yes, he has. After. He
0: has died. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the film is actually dedicated to him. Yeah.
2: yeah. An amazing end for him uh, to go out on such a high, though. Um, so mm. that's terrific. Shall we move into post-production then? It seems like we've wrapped up the shooting part of the film. Let's do it.
1: So post-production, and we're going to need some titles now. Morris Binder, who had been creating the titles for. Three decades now. He'd sadly died in 1991. So they needed someone else to take over. And so it went to Daniel Kleinman. So he said, I believe there had been a seven-year hiatus between Bond films and sadly Morris Binder died during that period. I was asked to take his place, probably because they had liked my video for Gladys Knight's Licence to Kill. I meant it in part to be an homage to the title sequences, which I'd always admired. He decided to make it around a, and tell a story during these titles and because there the fall of communism in Russia had happened during that period he went with that he said I was given the script to read there was nothing written there for the titles but the fact that the pre-title sequence was an earlier time to the post-title film gave me the idea to make the titles about time passing and also to illustrate the great political upheaval that had occurred during the period in question The fall of the Soviet state and communism was also pertinent to the plot of the film so it all fit. I like the idea of making the titles help the narrative of the film and I love classic Soviet art. It's very graphic. But according to Michael G Wilson some communist parties actually protested against these symbols being destroyed by bikini clad women who threatened then to boycott the film. But yeah Daniel Kleinman, he he did it purely because of his love love of the series. Uh, Nothing more than that, really. It's not something that he, he he chooses to do other than Bond. He said, we had a bit of a discussion at the beginning as to whether we should carry on some of the classic motifs of the girls and the guns and what have you. And I was very much of the opinion that, yes, one should stick with some of the formula and just sort of update it and freshen it up a bit. And I think it works. I think it's, it's, it definitely does what he wanted it to do. It tells a story. It helps that it's got a great song to it as
0: well. It's a very 90s modernisation of the, the Bond style, isn't it? it they get it right, yeah. but just with a 90s twang. But it's it. definitely got something more to it. Like it's 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 got a
1: narrative, which prior to that, that hadn't been the case, had it?
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That's something that carries on today as well, isn't it? Through the uh, through yeah. the, pre- the the title sequences. So for titles, you need a song and uh, the Rolling Stones were reportedly linked with writing a song, but they turned it down, which is a shame. I think uh, Tina Turner was then signed up to sing the song and she was given it 10 different songs to choose from. Eric Serra was the composer on this film. Anyway, his producer, Rupert Hind had also worked with Tina Turner. They worked on a song together and pitched it to her. However, Bono and the Edge of U2 fame, they found out that she had been hired to sing the, th- the song and they wrote a song for her um, off their own back. They basically were her neighbours in the south of France. And Bono had got inspired to write a song after having spent his honeymoon at GoldenEye in Jamaica with his uh, his wife. So Bono and The Edge created a, a demo version, which they then sent to Tina Turner. And talking about it later on, Tina Turner said, Bono sent me the worst demo. He kind of threw it together as if he thought I wasn't going to do it. This song, I didn't even know what key to practice in. It was unbelievable what I was sent here, but again, you know, you have to step into the shoes and learn it. And then I sung it how I would sing it, and then even Bono was impressed. Um, and he later admitted that he'd sent her bad um, demo, saying, uh, "I remember sending you that, and after I sent it, I realised it was really bad." And you can actually listen to that demo on YouTube, uh, and it is horrendous, but it is recognisably "Goldeneye." So the song that Eric Serra's producer. And Eric Serra had worked on was ended up being the experience of love, which plays over the closing credits, which, as I think we'll all agree, is one of the most dreadful James Bond uh, songs ever.
0: committed. I disagree. <laughs> I really like that song. Oh, God. It's awful. I listen to that song. It's awful.
2: Anyway, the, the finished the, the title the song was produced and mixed by the uh, remixer, composer Nelly Hooper, who was best known for his work with Massive Attack, Madonna, U2 and Bjork and when it was released, the song reached number 10 in the UK singles chart. Ace of Bass also recorded a song that had been optioned for this, by the studio, um, and that song later appeared as uh, the Juvenile on their 2002 album. Uh, so there mm. we go. That's the song.
0: Okay, then. Let's do the score. Um, so, you know, we've... With Goldeneye's got a lot of good comments up until this point. But I think if there's anything that lets Goldeneye down a bit, um I mean it's got a fantastic cast, fantastic story. I mean talked to him about the amazing effects and stuff. If something anything lets it down, probably gonna be the soundtrack with uh, Eric Serra. Um a, a a composer who was brought in. Um in fact John Barry was offered to, um, by Barbara Broccoli to, to to compose the film, but he turned it down. So they got Eric Serra in, um, and by all accounts, he did not. It was not well received. He was criticised for his sort of. He created a lot of, sort of synthy style music that was quite slow, bit of bit bit sort of dra- dragged on. Didn't really drive the plot or the the action sequence forward very well. Uh, the Metro said uh, it was more appropriate for a ride on an elevator than a ride on a roller coaster um, and film tracks. Um, I think it was a magazine or website said uh, uh, Sarah failed completely in his attempt to tie GoldenEye to the franchise's past, which I think is pretty evident when mm-hmm. you, when you listen to that, that soundtrack. I do remember at the time, I, I don't think I cared that much about soundtracks at the time. I just, I didn't really notice it. I think that's, that's the key really. You don't, it's not noticeable, is it? It's just something going on in the background. It doesn't help it in any way. But if you're watching it in the mind that you're paying attention to the soundtrack, then it starts to be a bit jarring. Martin Campbell talks about his disappointment with the score um, and he blames the budget constraints. And and he also said that there was a lot of difficulties in working with Sarah, um, especially when he he became uncooperative when asked to rescore the St. Petersburg tank chase. Um, after Campbell rejected the original track that he submitted. So they actually brought John Altman in to, to provide music for that sequence. Um, you can still hear Eric Serra's track on the soundtrack itself. It's called The Pleasant Drive in St. Petersburg, but it wasn't used on the film. Um, so, yeah, Serra just created loads of synthesizer tracks for it, including um, a version of the James Bond theme, which is played during the gun barrel sequence. Uh, And then Altman and David Arch actually provided a lot more of the traditional symphonic music that's played throughout the film. Uh, And then, as you mentioned, The Experience of Love comes up at the end of the film, which is actually based on a um, piece of music that um, Eric Serra had written for Leon, uh, Luc Besson's film. um, uh, So he hadn't even done it for the film, which is absolutely incredible. Mm. Uh, I can't imagine they paid him a lot to do this. Um, But yeah, ultimately what what appears is a sort of nothing background music soundtrack that really doesn't have any sort of bond style to it and that's what really annoyed people because look at David Arnold who appears in the next one he really takes he really takes his bond knowledge seriously he's gone in and listened to all those bond films it was like eric Serra had never heard a bond film and just ignored the fact that they existed and did his own thing um so yeah didn't get a lot of good press for um, His work on the score. I think we've just been so
2: spoiled with the John Barry scores. It's just so noticeable when you when you when you come to listen to to this one. That...
0: Well, it's I I think that that was probably I, I, they probably wanted that. They probably thought at the time we need to modernize. You know, it's the nineties. Yeah. We need to change things up. We need someone new. Eric Serrett at the time. I don't remember him being particularly impressive, but he, I he probably was a bit of a bigger deal around that that period. But it was a gamble that didn't pay off. And and that's why you know David Arnold came in because he wasn't a gamble; he was like a safe bet.
2: Yeah, there's a cue. I think it is the bit in on in the tank sequence, which who did say John Altman did. Yeah, Um, which is very very reminiscent of the one that we get in No Time to Die with Hans Zimmer. There's a there's definitely similarities there I'll I'll send you both the the bit I'm talking about but um, I think, Mm. I don't know, I don't think Hans Zimmer listened to Eric Serra but um, (laughs) I think when you've only got those that James Bond theme to work with you end up using the same bits and bobs don't you I guess
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah I I think I would love to hear a re-scored version of GoldenEye
0: I'd like Eric Serra to do some (laughs) other Bond films just to see, (laughs) (laughs) I'd love an Eric Serra No Time To Die soundtrack, fantastic (laughs) Uh, right so on to the posters and to be honest the
1: the iconic poster is the the reason it's iconic is probably down to the game more so than than the actual film because it's on the game cartridge if you remember it's um it's bond it's got the two uh, bond women either side of him the bright red 007 logo um and then explosions at the bottom but a couple of the teaser ones um used different taglines So in the US, they had a a gold close-up of Bond's eyes uh, pointing his handgun and accompanied with the 007 logo and the tagline, there is no substitute. And then there was another one where uh, Bond was posing in a tuxedo and it was to remind everybody and audiences that Bond is back and they just used the tagline, you know the name, you know the number and then the final one the one that is on the used uh, on the cartridge and was used for the final release of the film that had the tagline no limits no fears no substitutes very much a, a dig at the uh, all the other action films coming out at that time
2: i think my favorite is the black and white one you know the name the you know the number yeah it is is very good and
1: the uh, the trailer you know the trailer when he's just walking towards the camera yes fantastic
2: and didn't yeah. they get someone else? Someone else composed the score for that, I seem to remember reading. Um, not Eric Serra or anyone usual. They were like drafted in to do the score for that, but it is a terrific teaser trailer mm-hmm. for this film. Yeah. Right. Shall we release the film into the world and find out what happens? The film premiered on the 13th of November, 1995 at the Radio City Music Hall in New York. And as part of the marketing strategy for the BMW Z3, um, many of the the journalists and the press we were driven in to the premiere in Z3s after a complimentary meal. <laughs> after um, talking about the premiere and waiting for it to be revealed to the world, uh, Phil Mayhew, who was the cinematographer, he was waiting to see how the pre title sequence played out with an audience. And he said when he watched it for the first time, it got a huge roar of approval. Piers Brosnan, talking after the premiere, said, I'm glad I didn't screw it up for the kids. They could say, they they would have said, My father buried Bond. The premiere was used to raise money for charity, as they often are, and they raised over $500,000 for the Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center for Ovarian Research, which obviously where Brosnan's wife, Cassandra, had been a patient. Talking about his response to the film, the actor Liam Neeson had attended, who obviously had been linked with the role. He said, I genuinely felt like a 12 year old kid again, but the 43 year old in me was so thrilled that they tackled the whole feminist issue, too, with a great aplomb and a sense of humour. After the premiere, Brosnan, his partner Keeley, Kathleen Turner, Mimi Rogers, Matthew Modine and Bruce Fierstein ended up at Elaine's uh, in New York to um, celebrate the success of the film. Following that, there was a premiere in Europe at the Odeon Leicester Square with Prince Charles in November. There had been a premiere planned to happen in France, but that had to be cancelled After Piers Brosnan was very critical about the French nuclear tests happening in the South Pacific, he said, I will never be convinced that nuclear arms are good for peace. It is impossible to believe that these explosions have no consequences for the environment, nature and man. Um, and he was actually in company to those French interviews by Greenpeace activists. And it was this action that led to the um, the, the premiere in France being cancelled, which I never knew about before mm. researching this episode. Mm-hmm. And he, Sticking to his guns. And his stance on uh, nuclear weapons also led to the film being banned in China as well. So wow. um, there were premieres in Germany and Sweden as well, with Brosnan in attendance at both. What did the critics think?
0: So the critical response for Goldeneye was as you can expect pretty good. Quite a lot of people found it was um quite uh well I thought it's quite a good Bond film. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it a 79% approval rating and the, the the consensus quote is the first and best Piers Brosnan Bond film. Goldeneye brings the series into a more modern context and the result is a Zoo 7 entry that's high-tech, action-packed and urbane. Uh, Metacritic said uh, it's got a rating of 65 and it's got a rating on Cinema Score. I don't know how their scoring works, but it's got an A-, minus. Um, so sounds quite good. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars and said that Brosnan's Bond was somehow more sensitive, more vulnerable, more psychologically complete uh, than previous ones and also commenting on Bond's loss of innocence. Um, it's interesting from... Eva, many reviewers loved M in it, uh, especially lines like the sexist, misogynist Dinosaur and sort of understanding the evolution of Bond and moving it forward. Variety said the film breathes fresh creative and commercial life into the series. Empire said uh, revamps that indomitable British spirit uh, and that uh, the diehard movies don't even come close to 007. Sunday Times said it was the best Bond film since The Spy Who loved Me. It does really well in lists, so IGN shows it's the fifth best Bond film. We'll talk a little bit about our ratings shortly. Entertainment Weekly ranked it eighth. And, yeah, loads of good reviews, not many uh, negative ones. Although, Entertainment Weekly said uh, the series had entered a t- near-terminal state of exhaustion, which is uh, hmm. not, not very nice. Yeah. And uh, Time Magazine said uh, a third of a century's hard use... Bond's conventions survived on wobbly knees. So, not all good. Uh, Retrospectively, it has done very well. It's been cited as Brosnan's best Bond film. Um, And, uh, yeah, everyone seems to uh, be really pleased with it. Yahoo actually did a survey of 2,200 scholars and Bond superfans. Not sure who they are. And was voted as the best Bond film followed by Casino Royale and on a Manager secret service. So in good company there. So, yeah, all, all in all, a pretty positive review of Goldeneye.
1: Yeah, and it did did well at the box office as well. In its opening weekend, it got over 26 million in the US and Canada. And then in the UK, it got 5.5 million, um, which was the third biggest in history for a non-holiday weekend in the UK behind Jurassic Park and Batman Forever, and it had the, the the like we said earlier the fourth highest worldwide worldwide gross of films in ni- released in 1995, and it was the most successful Bond since Moonraker, taking inflation into account. Um, and remember, Moonraker was huge, so this this was a a big success. And in terms of the the film before, it, it grossed 83% more worldwide than License to Kill. So it was very much a return to form for the Bond franchise. But did it win any awards?
2: Well, it was nominated for two BAFTAs, Best Sound and Best uh, Special Visual Effects in 1996, but they lost out to Braveheart and Apollo 13. Here's a good one. Eric Serra won a BMI Film Award for the soundtrack. <laughs> and um, Yeah, well-deserved. Well-deserved. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> And at the Saturn Awards, GoldenEye was nominated for Best Action, Adventure or Thriller Film and Actor at uh, yeah the 22nd Saturn Awards. And it was also nominated for Best Fight, the 1996 MTV Movie Awards. So it was only Eric Serra that won an award for this film. Go figure. The
0: MTV Movie Awards have a Best Fight? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Best Fight, Best Kiss.
2: got um, Oh, it all? my
0: goodness. They don't do them anymore, do they? Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, crying out loud. I've never watched it, never will watch it. So GoldenEye is actually uh, quite... It has a big part of sort of film and video game history in that it's one of the few films, let alone Bond films, to have a game that's basically, in many ways, even more successful than the film itself. Many people probably remember GoldenEye more for the game than the, than the film, and people around the time who were playing GoldenEye, and literally anybody who had an N64 had GoldenEye. I bought an N64 at the time to buy GoldenEye just because everyone had it. You remember at the time, Butler, we used to meet up and um, groups of us would all just go around people's houses and, and play GoldenEye. It, yeah. And there'd always be two people that knew every level off by heart. Yeah. So... GoldenEye actually came about, it's, it's quite a strange on it, it came out short, just a few weeks before Tomorrow Never Dies came out, so it wasn't a tie-in with GoldenEye, it was it was just loosely associated with the film itself, and it was made by uh, developers, a developer called Rare, uh, which had a really big series of, of games after GoldenEye came out, uh, it was really, really impressive studio at the time, um, I don't think they existed, but they got bought out by another studio, but the game itself was created by um, a very inexperienced team by, led by a chap called Martin Hollis. And he previously had only worked on a coin-up version of Killer Instinct, which was an arcade beat-em-up, uh, which got ported to um, the SNES and a few other consoles. So they came in. and At the time, I remember seeing this in a few documentaries, that they didn't even expect this game to do well. They It was just a, a tie-in. They just thought, we'll just make a bit of extra cash off of by making a game. And at that point in time, even Broccoli and people have talked about this at that period. Nobody cared about... People in the movie industry didn't care about the games. The games were like, just, you know, make a bit of extra cash. Some of them are utterly awful. But this game just came out of nowhere and it just blew everyone away by pure surprise. They just managed to make this game that just pushed all these boundaries and they didn't even know they were doing it at the time it was inspired originally by Virtua Cop which is as you remember is like a shooting game a free ra- roaming shooter but you don't really control the characters it's more just you've got guns and you're shooting um, it took two and a half years to develop and it just blew everyone away because the the way that they did the game the solo levels so the game is a you can play it as a solo shooter um, but you can also play it as a, a multiplayer four, four way Nobody would ever done that like this before in such a a way. There were a lot of games like Doom around these first version shooters, all very similar in what they did. And this just was nothing like any of those games. It received uh, the BAFTA Interactive Entertainment Games Award and four awards at the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences. And it's considered to be one of the best games ever made. Even now, like there's never been a remade version of Goldeneye. Um, They did try a couple of times, but it was EA, I think, had the rights to it, and it wasn't, they didn't really try to recreate GoldenEye 007, they just used the name and had a first person shooter. So, the biggest surprise about GoldenEye is that it's never been re released on anything. Um, which and everyone's constantly every year you'll see somebody post an article about it saying, Oh, are they finally going to put it on Switch? Are they finally going to put it on PlayStation? Never happened, but it, at some point in the future, it's going to and it's going to go mad. It was followed by a game called Perfect Dark. I don't know if you guys played that game. No. It uses the same format of of Goldeneye, but it's not about Bond. Right. It's a really, really good game. It just doesn't have the originality of, of of the original Goldeneye. Also, yeah, the reimagining of the game was called Goldeneye 007, which was released in 2010. Didn't get anywhere near near the sort of impressiveness that that the original Goldeneye did. And interestingly, there's also a, a film that was made. Um, and I've never seen this. I might watch it. It's called Going for Goldeneye. Came out in 2017. It's a mockumentary that's meant to be in the style of like Spinal Tap, about a load of blokes that go and try and win the Goldeneye tournament, um, uh, the 19th Goldeneye tournament. I think I might watch that. Actually, it sounds uh, <laughs> probably isn't very good because I've never heard of it. But um, might have some good clips from uh, from from it. But yeah, Goldeneye uh, just f- phenomenal and probably goes into. I mean, if you look at the that the money that was made from bond films at that time golden eye the game probably has something to play in that because it brought a whole new audience of gamers into the world of bond yeah i mean what a, what a phenomenal game you're making me want to, it's making me want to play it again i've got it somewhere i've got the n64 around here somewhere well there's rumors there's the xbox version coming out soon isn't there i just don't try not to get too excited about any of these rumors that come up yeah would it, but it. I mean, the thing is, it would be a phenomenal online game if they did that. Yeah, I mean. shooters have come so far, though. Like, will it still live up to like what people hope for from a game like that? Well, that's the difficulty because when you release game old games in a new style, you can either try and revamp them and make them look newer and change the control features, or you can stick them as they are. And I have played GoldenEye recently, and it is clunky. At the time, it was phenomenal, like the controls and everything. You could actually use two controllers it was called the money penny controls one control was you walking around the other control was the gun (laughs) and and you'd have to be really good to do that it was quite hard to do and also you could obviously have two people playing at the same time yeah but um nobody'd ever done anything like that before it was absolutely amazing but yeah if if they bring it out again i'm just worried that it's just not gonna not gonna be as impressive as it was
2: so a hugely important james bond film uh as as we discussed before uh i would say uh the success of this film was mo- even more crucial to the longevity of the series than casino royale in my opinion mm-hmm. because we'd had such a long break 6 years um the future of the series was not in any way guaranteed after the the 80s bond era and i just it, i just think it just hits the ground running
0: in such a way um in so many It's different... a bit of a strange one for me. I, I agree, but it's like... I mean, as you know, Brendan, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm not as big as a fan of the Brosnan era as you are, <laughs> but I am almost as big a fan of GoldenEye as you are. Mm. But GoldenEye sort of sets this bar, and you, you you watch it and you go, this is phenomenal, it's back, Bond's back. But the other ones don't really match up, mm. whereas the Craig era... I'm not saying the Craig era is... like The, the whole era is way better than the Brosnan era... But it does maintain a certain momentum from that first film, whereas the Brosnan ones I don't think do. You get the initial buzz and the excitement of this first one, and then you just kind of lose it when you get in when you move into the next ones.
1: Yeah, but that's only with uh, what you know that comes after GoldenEye. You can't take it away from GoldenEye. You can't. No, it's not, uh, no, it's not no, GoldenEye's
0: I... fault what happened. No, I'm stopping at GoldenEye. <laughs> I've, I've got rid of the other DVDs. <laughs>
1: But I think it's absolutely huge. I, I think if yeah, if, if it wasn't a success, we wouldn't be doing this. We no. we wouldn't have just watched No Time
0: to Die. Well, we'd have we'd have finished earlier. <laughs> <laughs> we would have finished at but Dalton's Bond Seventeen done.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's just such a a pacey film as well. It, it it just moves along at such a pace that I just don't think that it's really light footed. I don't think they ever match up to it in um. Tomorrow never dies, or well, the world is not enough. It, it mm. they they be, they become very complex, very high tech. Whereas this mm. one is a Cold War or post Cold War type thriller. It's not something we have even discussed, is it? Like how it ha- came after the fall of the Berlin Wall and blah blah blah. That's all stuff we did in the Brosnan episodes. But um, it really just um, again, I can't I can't watch this movie subjectively because I just love everything about it, apart from the music, and maybe
1: the um, the smaller budget. You know, that made sure that they were extra creative and just put... They just need to, to give sp- all Bond films a small budget. A small budget, budget yeah. Um, and also, it seemed, from watching the documentaries and, and listening to the commentaries, it seemed that everybody involved was there with passion and they wanted to get this and make a really good Bond film. Like, everybody. Mm. from it doesn't matter who it is, everyone wanted to do it. Obviously, Barbara Broccoli had something to prove. Yeah. You know... And
0: and it it comes out on screen. It's well, great. That, that's probably one of the factors in the fact that there was a big change of guards. Not it might not have been around money, but more that at that point, if you'd kept the older lot in, who'd just been doing all of the Dalton ones, they might have lost the momentum of it, and they'd sort of, you know, that at that time it probably felt like Bond was going. It was like this is the last mm. chance to do it and it was probably going to be a failure so get a load of new people in that are fresh and excited they're going to take it and really run with it whereas if you get the old guard in they're just going to churn out another Dalton one and it might be the end of it so yeah. it's a smart move I think mm-hmm. by, by the this is, production team
2: that's what we need for Bond 26 isn't it some big golden eye energy like throw everything yeah. out start yeah. again get well, Campbell be Brosnan
0: according to Brendan. Brosnan and Campbell job done <laughs> Uh get Natalia
2: back as well. I think she's terrific. Um <laughs> yeah. she'd be great as an older Bond uh like uh, Bond girl. Um one thing I do think I, I always find disappointing with this film is is um Honor Top's, uh the way Honor Top dies at the end. I think her character gets a bit of a short um short shrift. 'Cause I think she's one of the best mm. Bond villains of all time, but her ending yeah. is so lame. I um, mean, mm. it happens so quickly,
0: it just takes her out of the equation. I always think Onatop is like a modern reworking of Volpe. Like you can see Volpe doing the same stuff if it was a little bit racier. Yes, but which is a fantastic model to work from. Mm -hmm. That that sort of psychotic, powerful female. She does it really well. Absolutely. Shall we talk about the rankings? Oh Oh, yes, yes. should be interesting.
2: (laughs) So we've done eight James Bond film rankings so far. Um, we're doing them in alphabetical order. We've done eight film specials so far. So the rankings as they stand at the moment. Number eight, Casino Royale 67. Number seven, Diamonds Are Forever. Number six, Die Another Day. Number five, A View to a Kill. Number four, For Your Eyes Only. Number three, Casino Royale. Number two, Doctor No. And number one, our, our number one James Bond film so far is From Russia With Love. So... Where does Goldeneye rank among those? Um, who wants to go first? This is horrible. I,
0: I'm going four. You're going four? I'm going four because I'm, I'm going slightly more objective than you two will. Brendan? I'm going third. Oh, you're going third. So
2: behind from Russia with love and Dr. No. Yeah. Because I'm going right up to the top. I'm
0: putting it at number one, baby. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, you've got a, some level of objectivity. He's, in he's this. lost it. He's lost his head, hasn't <laughs> he? Uh, <laughs> pathetic. What's the point in you even doing this? <laughs>
2: so we've got what? What did you say? A fourth, a third, and a first. Yeah. What's that average out at?
0: Does it average out? Does it average out? <laughs> what is it? Uh, well, well, it's A, either going to be two or three, isn't it? It's divided by
2: three. So it's like, it's, th- it's either, th- it's between two and three, isn't it? Yeah. So what do we think? <laughs> Where are we
0: going to put I it? I just don't think you can put golden eye above. Well, no, hold on. Here we go. He's going to put it in number one, oh, one as right. well. Okay, I wouldn't mind if we ended up with like, from Russia with Love, Golden Eye, and uh, Goldfinger, and then Golden Eye, but I, uh, yeah, I. Right, here's here's yeah. the question. Right, is it better than From Russia with Love? No.
1: Is it, it better than Doctor No? Yes. Probably.
2: <laughs> is it? Is it really? It's think... more. It's more. In, it's more of a romp. <laughs> is it better than Casino Royale?
0: <laughs> I reckon to but. <laughs> I, re- I reckon three at three, but I don't it's not even better than a view to a kill, is it? I mean, what's- <laughs> Actually, stick it at three because it's not going to stay at three anyway. What, so beh- behind
2: Dr. No, but in front of Casino Royale? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I'm, I mean, I would say one, even one higher than that in front of Dr. No, but behind from Russia with love. But if, if you two say that.
0: Look, I'm, I'm planning ahead and working out what else we've got. And where this will end up at the end of the whole thing? Well, you shouldn't be doing it like that. You should be doing how you feel today, now. Well, I'll put it at eight then. <laughs> <laughs> You're sick of it at and this point, just, aren't you? To move it down a bit.
2: Okay, let's put it. it looks in like at, it's going at number three. It's going in at number three. So yeah. from Russia with love, Doctor No, Golden Eye, and it's yeah taking the spot from Casino Royale, which is it's interesting, isn't it? It's like is it a better film than Casino Royale? Um, no, it's no. The, I would watch it over Casino Royale, though. Yeah, me too. Would you, Wheatley? What's the, so what's the ranking for, then? Is it better, or do you,
0: do you fancy watching it more? It's our opinions. Look, everyone's got okay, one. right. <laughs> Completely <laughs> random. Slightly subjective, slightly objective, whatever you fancy. <laughs> oh, well, well, that's... I'm putting Eric Serra in Best Soundtrack, so I oh, <laughs> do that
2: yeah, that uh, just about um, wraps up our episode on uh, Goldeneye. Um, our next episode will be on Goldfinger.
0: So we're going... Now we're talking. From the sublime. <laughs> a
2: seven-hour podcast. From the sublime Jesus. to the sublime. Um, I can't wait to get stuck into Goldfinger. I mean, these two back-to-back has just been a dream, really, hasn't it? Um,
0: we it's about time. Yeah, I know, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: um, I'm busy. I'm busy after Goldfinger. <laughs> yeah, i
2: um, just looking at the list now of what is after that. Um, Goldfinger, and then we're back into some of the the, the classic letters, and then we'll be hitting Lazenby and um, sometime mm. later this year. So well, that's one to look forward to. And then we've got License to Kill and Live and Let Die back to back, so they'll be good ones to look forward to. But uh, yeah, join us next time where we'll be talking about Gold finger uh if you've got anything that you want to let us know about golden eyes or anything we've missed is there anything you want to add then please uh, email us on
0: podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk
2: and if you want to complain about our rankings which you can find on letterbox then you can find us on social media that would be
0: fully justified yeah. please please go ahead <laughs> you can find us on
2: social media where
1: at James Bond A 8 z on twitter instagram
2: and facebook Well, what an absolute thrill ride this has been. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We really appreciate every single one of you who tunes into the podcast every week. Um, uh, James Bond A to Z will return next week.
0: Cheers. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingramels. And artwork supplied by Helen Dolly.
2: Yes! I am invincible!